First Samuel chapter two. First Samuel chapter two. I want to read the first ten verses. First Samuel two verses one to ten. Scripture says there, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts the Lord in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is none, no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises the poor man from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he sets the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah, who is uh, praising God here, was a woman of God. In 1 Samuel, she is petitioning the Lord. Uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she is. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, she is praising the Lord. For what did she pray in 1 Samuel chapter 1? She prayed for a child because she had none. And unlike the people today, and there are many who choose abortion, she desperately wanted a child. She uh, craved to have a child. And she prayed for a child. Now, her husband, Elkanah, had two wives, and we'll deal with that on another day. And, but their names were Hannah and Penina. Penina had children. In fact, chapter 1, if you'll go back to chapter 1, verse 4, you'll see that verse 4 mentions all her sons and daughters. In other words, she had her fair share of children. But verse 5 of chapter 1 says the Lord closed. He had closed Hannah's womb. That was a stigma in that time. Society considered it a, dis a disgrace for a woman to not have children. Add to that trial what verse 6 says. Verse 6 says, her rival, however, would provoke her. Now her rival is the other wife, Penina. Her rival, Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb and she wanted her to feel that pain Penina did. And this is not a one and done situation. Look at verse 7. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that Penina would provoke Hannah. So she wept and would not eat. So Hannah lived with this trial for some years. You can imagine picking at her, picking at her constantly and irritating her about this fact that she has no children, whereas Penina has plenty of children. Probably Penina was jealous of Hannah because verse 5 says Elkanah loved Hannah and treated her with special care, more special, no doubt, than Penina. Now, every year this family would make a trip to Shiloh to worship. That's the place where they worshiped then and sacrificed to the Lord. On this one occasion, verse 10 says that Hannah, being literally bitter of soul, kind of like uh, in, in Ruth, she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Then she makes a vow to the Lord and says, look, if you'll give me a child, a son, 
I'm going to dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. And the Lord does that in chapter 1, verse 20. It says it came about in due time after she had conceived that she gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, because I have asked him of the Lord. Samuel means asked. Look at verses 27 and 28, Hannah's testimony about this birth. She says, for this boy I prayed, and the Lord has given me my petition, which I ask of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, some women who would pray for a child and were bearing, bearing for some period of time and would get a child might think, well, I've born a son, and now I can go on with my life. And that's the end of it. But, but not Hannah. She not only prays to the Lord for a son, she follows through with praise and thanksgiving for what the Lord has done for her. Hannah is a woman who wants to glorify the Lord. We talked about this last week, last couple weeks. She wants to glorify the Lord through praise and thanksgiving. That's a great way, pure way, to glorify the Lord. And as we examine this prayer of praise, we don't want to get too overly analytical because Hannah is praying for the, from the depths of her soul, and uh, it's a heartfelt prayer. But it is also a prayer rich in theological truth. As you read through this, you see that it makes much of the Lord. And it's going to become clear as we study tonight that Hannah has a high view of God and she understands who he really is. She really understands the scriptures, the scriptures that were present for her, and she understands who God is. But it's, or maybe someone taught her along the way, but she also, this, this prayer is also very poetic. It's in the form of a poem. And so many recall it Hannah's song. Uh, now you'll find these songs, these prayer slash songs recorded in the Old Testament, usually after God does some great act of deliverance some gracious, gracious act of his, then you'll find a song. Like, for example, Exodus 15, there's a song of Moses, which followed the deliverance uh, from the Exodus. In uh, Judges 5, there's a song of Deborah, celebrating the Lord's intervention in the military of Israel uh, in Judges chapter 4. And later on in 2 Samuel 22, David sings unto the Lord after he was delivered from his enemies. And this is similar to those songs and what you have to understand is about these kind of songs is the focus of these songs, and, and Hannah's songs in particular tonight, is on the character and work of the Lord. So what does Hannah praise the Lord for? Number one, she, there's praise for the Lord's salvation. Praise for the Lord's salvation, verse one. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now you can sense the joy uh, in her heart, as we read verse 1, she is rejoicing in the Lord. She's thrilled. Notice the four personal pronouns in verse 1. kind of reminds me of Psalm 145, the first couple of verses. She says, my heart, my horn, my mouth, and I rejoice. This song of Hannah is not merely formal. It is highly personal for her. She is letting her feelings be known to the Lord. And we've talked about this before. Uh, you know, our relationship with the Lord is not devoid of emotions. If you're not one who says amen to everything out there, does it mean that you, can have, you, you, you couldn't have a relationship with God, at least where you pour out your heart to him in private? Everybody can do that. Because in the Psalms, there are people praying with tears, with joy, with lament, with complaints, emotions all over the place. And prayer is not something formal. It is something that is an expression of your heart's devotion to God. Now, in the first prayer, recorded prayer of Hannah, that's chapter 1, 
She says, I am a woman, in verse 15, she says, I am a woman who is oppressed in spirit. I, in other words, she's burdened down, greatly burdened down because of her situation, <clears throat> because she's being provoked because of her situation. But in chapter 2, this is a prayer overflowing with joy. Now, obviously, she's grateful for the birth of her son. We know that any woman is grateful for the birth of a son, and it's always a thrilling time, and a baby's born, and everybody's excited and happy and all this, and as it should be. But the focus of Hannah in chapter 2 is not on Samuel. It's on the greatness of God. She is rejoicing in him. Her heart is overflowing because she has the joy of the Lord. Or she puts it, <clears throat> my heart exults, or my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, now, she also says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, nobody here says that today. Nobody says when they're excited or praising God, my horn is exalted in the Lord. How many people here have said that? Of the two people that are here before me, no one has said that. that what does that mean? It kind of sounds strange, right? The horn symbolizes strength and power and, and triumph. The horns of animals are used for purposes of defense and purposes of attack. And so the picture of the horn being exalted is that of an animal elevating its head in a display of strength over another animal. Hannah's horn being exalted implies the Lord, her vindication from the Lord. Over before, before Penina and other people who would seek to provoke, provoke her. She's being vindicated. The Lord has reversed her situation in life. The triumph she's experiencing is, is from the Lord. It's not her doing. <clears throat> it's of the Lord. Like 1 Corinthians says that the salvation we have of Christ is his doing, not ours. And so Hannah's horn is exalted in the Lord, you'll notice. Now prior to this, Hannah was anything but triumphant. As you read first, read chapter 1, read chapter 2, and you will see a woman who is bitter and sad and depressed, now having turned to the Lord in her time of need, having prayed and sought God, she is able to experience the victory that God gave her. She's rejoicing in the Lord. Her disgrace has been removed, <clears throat> and she can hold her head high, basically is what she's saying, because the Lord has, has done this for her. She next says in verse 1, my mouth speaks boldly against my enemies, or literally, my mouth is open wide against my enemies. The word enemies is plural, so it's more than just Penina, her, the rival wife, who relentlessly attacked her again and again. Maybe others did the same. Maybe other women said comments about her. But Hannah never complains about Penina. She doesn't even criticize her in chapter 1. She leaves her vindication in the hands of God. It's like the verse says, vengeance is mine, I will, will repay, says, says the Lord. Now, a lot of people want to take vengeance, revenge in their own hands, but not Hannah. She prays instead. Her mouth is now open wide because God has done something great for her. Given her victory, you could say, over her enemies. She's been vindicated. Now, that does not mean she's vindictive. I don't believe Hannah is vindictive here. I don't think she's trying to get revenge or anything. She's just rejoicing in God because of the great victory he has brought about. <clears throat> Furthermore, I think her enemies are God's enemies. Uh, in this prayer, it's obvious that Hannah loves the Lord. You can see that clearly. She wants his glory. This prayer really reveals a lot about her. What a great difference between, there is between Hannah and Penina. Tremendous difference. In chapter 1, Penina vents her anger towards Hannah, always irritating, always provoking her. What does Hannah do? She seeks the Lord. She doesn't fight back. She seeks the Lord. That's how a believer should act when being reviled. Maybe that's a good uh, a passage to think about for, and a good thought to think about right now and the circumstances we're presently in. That's what Christ did. 
1 Peter 2.23, when it says, when Christ was being reviled, he did not revile in return. Think about this. The greatest, uh, the greatest suffering ever Christ went through on the planet, being reviled by people, and yet did not return revile at, at all. When suffering, he uttered no threats. He didn't threaten anybody. But <clears throat> what did he do? He kept him trusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ kept entrusting himself as he's being reviled to God the Father. That is the way to respond to people when they're making your life miserable, when they're reviling you. It's not natural to us to do this, but it's what God wants. Keep entrusting yourself to him when you're in that situation. Now, why does her heart exalt in the Lord? Why does she say her horn is exalted in the Lord? Why does she say I speak, you know, boldly against my enemies, who are also God's enemies? The reason is found in the last phrase of verse 1. She says, because I rejoice in your salvation. Or I rejoice in your deliverance. It's, we could translate it that way. It's what it means. Salvation here means deliverance. And deliverance comes in different ways in the Old Testament. It could be, a, uh, uh, could be deliverance from an enemy, physically, a military victory. <clears throat> it could be deliverance from a troubling situation. Uh, it could be deliverance from sin. For Hannah, it was deliverance from barrenness. God had granted her deliverance from barrenness. And so God is the ground for rejoicing for Hannah. He is the ground of her rejoicing. It's all about him. It's not about the blessing. Like I say, most people might think, oh, I've got a son now. I'll think about the son, the baby. It's all about the baby. But not with Hannah. It was all about God. Of course she's thrilled about the baby. But she's giving praise to God in chapter 2. And so it's about the Lord. Some people would not want it that way, but Hannah does. Now, we don't want to magnify the gift, the gift over, over the giver. It's not about the gift, first of all. It's always, first of all, about the giver. As James 1.17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift uh, is coming down from the Father of lights. It's coming down from the Father of lights, from God, with whom there's neither variableness or shadow of turning. That's what we must recognize. Our, the gifts are, are from God. We rejoice in his salvation. Well, that's Hannah. She rejoiced in God, but what about us? What have we praised the Lord for? We know he's delivered us from the bondage of sin. Do we praise him for that? Do we thank him for that on a regular basis? He's also no doubt answered prayers on your behalf, and we should praise him for that. God never promised us a life free of pain. He never said that anywhere. Uh, but think of all the times the Lord has brought his salvation to you in different circumstances. Probably not even aware of all the times he's intervened in our life. What should our response be? We should rejoice in God like Hannah did, giving him full recognition, thanking him for what he has done, that he is our deliverer. And so she prays for the Lord's, there's praise here for the Lord's salvation. Secondly, there's praise for the Lord's uniqueness. Verse 2 is uniqueness. In verse 2 she says, There is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides you nor is there any rock like our God, none like him. Hannah's prayer doesn't stop with praising the Lord for his salvation, but because he's also incomparable. No one can compare to him, and these three parallel lines show us this fact. He's totally unique. First of all, it says there's no one holy like the Lord. Now, in a world full of sinners like we live in, and by the way, read 1 Samuel chapter 1 and chapter 2, and you will see sinners in both those chapters. There's no one holy, there's only one who's holy, and that's God. He's completely separated, separated from sin. 
He is beyond, he's other than sin. Elsewhere in the scriptures, he's called the Holy One of Israel. Now, we live in this world filled with evil and evildoers. We see it all over the place. Uh, Martin Luther said, this world with devils filled, and that's the truth. It is filled with devils. There's no human alive who isn't staying with sin. That's why it's so easy for us to become cynical, because we see corruption everywhere. <clears throat> you see it constantly. It's, we expect it. We expect corruption. We expect sin because it's everywhere. We, we see scam, scam artists all over the place. We have to be careful in business transactions because we might get taken. We have to keep everything under lock and key because there's thieves all over the place. And yet, with all this, there is someone we can go to and have the knowledge that this person, this one is without sin. There's no corruption in him. There's no darkness in him. Only light. There's no evil in him, and that is God. The only one who's holy, totally and completely holy, and his intentions towards his people are holy, which means what he wishes for us is good. We can trust him, this holy one, even if everyone else in the world is untrustworthy. Let God be true, but every man a liar. There's no one holy like the Lord. Secondly, indeed, there, are no, there is no one beside you, she says. No one beside you. David says much the same in 2 Samuel 22:32. He says, for who is God beside the Lord? There is none. There is no God beside the Lord. Take all the gods of all the religions of the world and combine their attributes together, and you will not have the equivalent of the Lord. In fact, these are all just dumb idols. They're not even real. They're, 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 they're works of men's hands. They're products of their imagination. Now, <clears throat> I do believe that demons influence false religion. Yes, of course. They're very real. Satan wants to spread all the falsehood that he can, but who can compare to God? What demon can compare to God? Even the devil himself is subject to God. No one like him. Nor is there any rock like our God, she says. God's often called the rock in the Old Testament. The rock symbolizes strength, symbolizes security. He's our strength. God's our security. He's like our immovable rock. We can go to him in an unstable world, an uncertain world. Isn't this a world that's unstable and uncertain? It's always been that way, not just now. It's always been that way. We can go to our rock. The one constant in life is the rock, our God. David testifies to this fact in Psalm 18, 1 and 2 when he says this, I love you, O Lord, my strength. Notice how he compounds this. I, my strength, the Lord is my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer, my God. Again, he says, my rock in whom I take refuge. David understood who his rock was, his strength. In the New Testament, the, uh, the, the one who is called the rock is Christ. He's called a rock or a stone. And to his people, he's the rock of ages. So by these three parallel statements, Hannah gives praise to our unique God. He's unique. Thirdly, she praises God for the Lord's, for his knowledge. Praise for the Lord's knowledge. Verse 3, she says, boast no more so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. With him, actions are weighed. I told you this prayer song was a one theologically rich and in truth, divine truth, praise for the Lord's knowledge. In the context of this prayer of praise, the one boasting, no doubt, and showing arrogance and being proud is Penina. She's the rival of Hannah. She is the one who expresses arrogance against Hannah, but Penina is not the only rival. <clears throat> Penina is, a, is an illustration of all who would open their mouth with pride and arrogance you know, we all know that God hates pride. He hates it. He says that many times, Proverbs, other places. 
He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. But there's something else to consider, something else the proud and the arrogant need to consider, and that is the Lord is a God of knowledge. They don't think about this. So knowledgeable, he knows all that can be known. He knows every detail about every matter in the universe. There is nothing he does not know. Now, all of us are limited in knowledge. We can only know so much. We can only know what we've learned in life. We can only see things from our limited perspective of life. We, can't, we don't have the wide lens. We know what we've experienced in life. Our minds hold a certain amount of information, but we don't know everything far from it. Even the knowledge that we have, by the way, can be an inaccurate knowledge. We can learn something that's totally inaccurate for years. It can be distorted. We can even forget what we learned, and so we're limited in many ways. Scientists often believe they've discovered uh, some fact only to be proven wrong years later. Oh, that was wrong. That's just how it is. We're limited. The best of human minds, greatly limited. But the Lord knows everything. He doesn't have to study like we do. He doesn't have to learn anything. He already knows everything intuitively. And that includes a perfect knowledge of the human heart. He knows our hearts thoroughly and completely. He understands who we are. John chapter 2, at the end of John chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, you remember Jesus, it says Jesus did not commit himself to people because he knew what was in man. He knew. He couldn't trust them. So he knows our hearts. He knows the thoughts that we have. He knows what we think before we think it. He can see inside our heart. That's why it says in Genesis 6, 5, just prior to the flood, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw this. He knew it. God knows the plans that we form in our minds, good or bad. He knows what purposes, the purpose of, of our heart really are. People can fool us, but they can't fool God. Proverbs 16:2. all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. We think we are, are always good, but the Lord weighs the motives. He knows. He knows what is going on. He's not blind to our heart's intentions. He knows why I do what I do. He knows all this. And so he weighs my actions. He evaluates them. He, he, he uh, judges them, discerns them. That is why, that's why boastful people, proud people, need to be, be beware because God is evaluating the actions of people. And it's a comfort to know that in this evil world, the proud and the arrogant and the boastful do not go unnoticed. God knows. That's why it says in 1 Samuel 16, God sees not as man sees, for man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. He knows. God of knowledge. Fourthly, there is praise for the Lord's sovereignty. Praise for the Lord's sovereignty. Look at verses 4 to 8. Hannah says in this, in this tremendous prayer, she says, the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry cease to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The Lord kills, he makes alive. He brings down the shell, he raises up. He makes poor and rich, he brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. All these things God does because he's sovereign. And Hannah gets it. She understands what all Arminians refuse to understand, that God is sovereign. He, he, it is he who controls the destinies of all people. And a lot of people won't accept that, but that doesn't make it untrue. 
He's authoritative over all. He exercises his prerogative, prerogatives as he will. And Hannah details this authority of the Lord for us. She does so with five contrasts. Did you see the five contrasts? We'll look at them one by one. This section is often referred to as the reversal of human fortunes. The reversal of human fortunes. What does that mean? Well, take Job for an example. When we are first introduced to Job, we encounter a man who's rich. He has everything, all these possessions, all these animals, a large family, and then everything goes topsy-turvy. He loses all his wealth, and he loses all his possessions and his health even, but then later on everything is returned to him uh, to a state of blessing. That's an example of human fortunes being reversed. And who is behind all that, <clears throat> ultimately? God is. Ultimately, he's behind all this. And Hannah knows that, and Hannah reveals this is the Lord behind these things, Look at these five contrasts that show the sovereignty of God. Number one, the strong and the weak, verse four. <clears throat> the bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. A, a, a powerful army, no matter how strong it is, is no match for God. You see that in the Old Testament all the time. Their military weapons cannot stand against them. He can destroy their military might. He shows us in, in his word he did that. He drowned the Egyptian army when they were going through the Red Sea. <clears throat> he wiped out 185,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army. He defeated the enemies, the enemies of Israel before Joshua. And so he reversed the fortunes of the strong <clears throat> and made them weak. And then on the other end of it, it says, but the feeble gird on strength. The word feeble means actually to stumble or totter. The ones who are stumbling or tottering and don't have the strength to stand even, they gain strength. And it reminds me of Isaiah 40 which says, even young men stumble badly, the ones who are supposed to be the strongest. They stumble badly, but those who wait upon the Lord, they gain new strength, because God can make the weak strong. He can make the strong weak and the weak strong. Second contrast, the full and the hungry, verse 5. <clears throat> those who were full hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry ceased to hunger. You can see that in the life of the prodigal son. He did everything, he, he had everything he wanted in life right there at his disposal, but he, he had a better idea than his father. He thought, I'll go strike out on my own, and he does, and he finds out what the real world's like. And he goes broke, and he gets hungry, and he has to feed himself with, he would have liked to have fed himself with what the pigs were eating, he was so hungry. And he realizes, I've got to go back to my father's house, and when he does, he ceases to hunger. It just shows you that God can make the hungry the full hungry and the hungry full. What about the barren? Here's the third contrast, the barren and the fertile. Verse 5, again, even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. The barren in this context had been Hannah. What's this? Did she have seven children? No, she had one. <clears throat> not seven, but according to verse 21, she would get five more. That totals six, still not seven. But seven children is used elsewhere in the Scripture, like, for example, Ruth chapter 4. Jeremiah 15, especially in regard to seven sons. It's a phrase they used back then. Seven was considered to be a complete family. Not meant in this case to be taken literally, but to describe an ideal family. And the point is this. The Lord blesses the barren with children, even while the mother of many children languishes if God reverses the fortunes, according to his will and purpose, maybe because of judgment or whatever. The word languishes describes a state of exhaustion or weakness. So the woman with many children should be happy about this, and maybe she's boasting about this, and she should feel blessed, but God is reversing her fortune, 
and she is instead exhausted and feeble and growing faint. God can do that. The fourth contrast, the living and the dead, verse 6. <clears throat> the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down the shell and he raises up. The Lord has absolute authority over the entire life of a human being. None of these things happen by chance. Deuteronomy 32, 39, the Lord says, listen to this. Deuteronomy 32, 39, he says, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded and it is I who heal, he says. Incredible verse about God's sovereignty. Now, Sheol is the, is the realm of the dead. The Lord has power to bring someone to the place of the dead. And he can, or he can restore the health of one who is knocking at death's door. He can do either one. He's sovereign over all these things. She's praising him for his sovereignty. The fifth contrast, the poor and the rich. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor, or he can make rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. He can do all these things. The Lord has even control over our economic situation. You say, but I'm in dire straits right now. But maybe we violated biblical financial principles. That's possible. Maybe we've gotten ourselves into debt unnecessarily. Maybe we don't give anything to God to his purpose. Maybe we don't give to the Lord at all. Maybe the Lord's teaching us a painful economic lesson. But remember who it is that gives you what you have. Whatever you have was given to you by God. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We are warned not to say this. We cannot say, my power and the strength of my hand has made me wealthy. We can't say that. We're to remember that it's God who gives us the power to get wealth. Whatever we have comes from him. I like 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 2.8. It says this. Do you see that phrase? He lifts the needy from the ash heap. The ash heap is the town dump. Or it could be called the dung hill. It's a place where beggars slept, a place where beggars begged. God can take those people and turn it all around for them and place them in the presence of nobility. Make it totally different from what it was at the beginning. Remember Mordecai and Esther, where he was nobody at first, and then he became one of the big guys in the kingdom. What are these five contrasts teaching us? The Lord is sovereign. That's what it's teaching us. He's sovereign over every area of life. He's authoritative. We don't ultimately control our destiny. destiny. We may think we do. Now, we're, to be, we're responsible before God for our actions, yes. We are to live wisely. And there's always the responsibility of man that stands alongside the sovereignty of God. Those two things are always true. Never forget it. We play our life role. Don't become a hyper-Calvinist. We do what we need to do, but ultimately the Lord is sovereign. And it concludes this section in verse 8 by saying, For the pillars of the Lord of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them. In other words, the Lord created the world, he upholds it, he governs it. And Hannah spells it out for us in a vivid way, and she gives praise because God is sovereign over all things. And he, her fortunes had been reversed from chapter 1. Fifthly, there's praise for the Lord's security. <clears throat> praise for security in verse 9. He keeps the feet of his godly ones. His godly ones are his people. You can also translate that as saints or holy ones. These are people to whom God has pledged his covenant love. They belong to him, as opposed to the wicked people in the next line. <clears throat> there's the ones, his godly ones, in the beginning of the verse. Second line, there's the wicked ones. Verse 9 is showing us a strong contrast between the two. Now, in ancient Israel, when people traveled, they had... 
to walk over ground that was rocky, often dangerous. In fact, it's still a rocky topography today. Often dangerous walking. Uh, and, uh, and so they, it says here, the Lord keeps the feet of his godly ones, meaning he guards his people. He watches over them through the dangers of life. He takes care of them. He preserves them. He protects them <clears throat> as they journey through life. Now, that's, in, that's stated in a contrast form here. He protects them versus the wicked who are not protected under his loving care. They are rather silenced in darkness, a reference to the grave, where everything is silent and dark. So whereas God watches over his people, he's not watching over the evil and the wicked in that manner. And we're probably not, as I said before, probably not even aware of all the times the Lord has intervened in our life, maybe in ways that we were in great danger and didn't even know it. But God has protected us in some circumstance, preserved us, watched over us in, in many different ways. And I know he keeps us all safe for, for, all, for his people safe for eternity. 1 Peter 1.5, we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's an incredible blessing from the Lord. Our security is in him. We should give him praise for that. Sixthly, there's praise for the Lord's judgment. Lord's judgment, verse 9. Whereas the feet of the godly ones are kept, he says, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Judgment. The wicked are engulfed in the darkness of death. They can try as they may, exert what strength they may and might. They will not prevail ultimately because it says not by might shall a man prevail. You know, the wicked contend against God's people. They're always doing this, ultimately. Uh, but you know what? They're, they're not only contending against God's people. When they do that, they're contending against the Lord himself. You see, if you're contending against the Lord's people, you're contending against God. Remember when Christ appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus? And he said, Paul, Saul, rather, why are you persecuting the church? He didn't say that. He said, why are you persecuting me? Because... When, when the church is being persecuted, Christ takes that very personally as if it's an attack upon his own person. And against such people, the Lord will thunder in the heavens. That's interesting that it says thunder there. That same word is used in chapter 1, verse 6, the word thunder, which tells us Penina irritated Hannah. The word irritated in 1, 6 is translated as thunder here. So the wicked may thunder against God. They may oppose him. They may contend with him, but God will thunder against them. And I don't want to be on the receiving end of that. That's serious judgment. And it says he's going to judge the ends of the earth and all the world and all the wicked will be brought to justice here. Now, you know, people wonder about justice. God's going to bring all the wicked to justice. He'll take care of all that. Finally, there's praise for the Lord's anointed. For the, for the Lord's anointed at the end of verse 10. It says, he will give strength to his king and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, the idea of a king was uh, nothing new in Israel, even though they didn't have one yet in 1 Samuel chapter 2. They'd get one in 1 Samuel chapter 10. But in Deuteronomy 17, uh, that chapter speaks of future kings. There's going to be a king one day in Israel, it says, and people knew that. And Hannah here is probably prophesying of a future king. By the way, this is the first use of the word anointed in the Bible to refer to a king, the Lord's anointed king. The interesting thing here is that although Hannah didn't know it at the time, Samuel, her son that was born, <clears throat> would become a prophet. And he would anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. 
The second one, David, would be the one through whom Christ would come. And Christ means anointed one. So the Lord would give strength to David. He would exalt his horn, make him strong. And the idea of, this idea of the exalted horn begins this chapter and ends this chapter. God will enable the, his earthly king to rule and eventually Messiah to rule. And it reminded me of Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Let me read that. It says that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and his kingdom will have no end. You can see that this is a great prayer. It's how we should learn to pray. It's a God-centered prayer. Can't we, like Hannah, rejoice in the Lord's salvation? Can't we do that? Shouldn't we stand in awe of his uniqueness? Aren't we both comforted and also confronted and convicted by the Lord's knowledge? We should be. Shouldn't we humble ourselves before his sovereignty? And are we not thankful for his protection? You know, we want to exalt the Lord. We want to exalt the Lord's anointed, Christ. We want our prayers to be God-centered and Christ-exalting. There's one more thing I want to say. It seems as if another woman in the Bible was acquainted and inspired by this prayer of Hannah's. Do you know who that might be? Turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and we'll close with this. Luke chapter 1. Another woman who seems to have understood this prayer of Hannah, and that woman was Mary. She obviously knew about this prayer of Hannah. Obviously, as you read her prayer, it's filled with scripture. Let's read Luke 1, 46 to 55 together. <clears throat> it says here, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. See if this doesn't sound like Hannah's prayer. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For his, he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, in other words, her fortunes were reserved, were reversed rather. For behold, from this time on, all generations will call me, count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. <clears throat> and mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel's servant in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Can you see the similarities in their prayers? God used both women to bring about someone who would greatly influence this world. Hannah brought about uh, Samuel, who was the prophet of Israel, Mary bore Jesus, the Savior of the world. What's the takeaway from all this? Both women humbled themselves before God. Both women sought to glorify the Lord. Both women gave praise and thanksgiving to God for what he did. And I think that studying their prayers, studying their praise, will help us to pray and to praise God as the Lord would have us, as he deserves. Let's not forget the ultimate goal is not even answered prayer but rather that the Lord is glorified and that he is honored. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful to have your word before us, to learn from it. We pray you'll help us to understand it, to benefit from it, to grow from it, and help us to praise you because you, de you are deserving of praise, deserving of thanksgiving. We pray we'll praise you every day of the week. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.